Well, hello and welcome again to a quick episode of the Cook County Chapter Summary Podcast, made for and by the outstanding residents of Cook County. This month, we are covering topics that I know you all went into emergency medicine for. Edithoricotomies? No, no. Difficult airways? No, we're not covering that either. No, today we are covering gastritis, biliary disease, pancreatitis, and hepatitis. Now, I know these aren't the sexiest topics in emergency medicine, but they are definitely bread and butter, and we see them all the time, so we should be really, really good at them. Our first talk is on gastritis, and it's coming to you from yours truly. The mind of a Neanderthal, the athletic ability of Helen Keller, and a morphinoid body habitus. Please welcome John Hardwick. All right, let's talk gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. We see this all the time in the emergency department. Typically, gastritis will present with burning or gnawing epigastric pain that is provoked by PO intake. Peptic ulcer disease, on the other hand, typically will present with pain that comes on throughout the day, randomly, and may get better or worse with food. The typical story of peptic ulcer disease is a patient with gnawing epigastric pain that is worse when lying down and wakes the patient from sleep. Both gastritis and peptic ulcer disease will have minor tendinous palpation in the epigastric region on exam. If I'm being totally honest with you though, My history generally can't determine if a patient has peptic ulcer disease or gastritis. And that's all right, because it really doesn't matter in the emergency department, as long as your patient doesn't have one of the following red flags. The red flags of peptic ulcer disease are age greater than 55, unexplained weight loss, early satiety, persistent vomiting, dysphagia, anemia or GI bleeding, abdominal mass, persistent anorexia, and or jaundice. Patients with any of these red flags will need expedited endoscopy, possibly emergent if the patient appears sick or is actively exsanguinating. So just to clarify, if a patient has red flags, that does not necessarily mean they need admission, but they should have an expedited endoscopy. Workup for gastritis is pretty simple. For simple, uncomplicated gastritis, a good history and physical is really all you need. If you think the patient's bleeding, you should probably get an H&H to see how much they're bleeding. A lot of attendings will argue that you should do a fecal occult blood test on every single patient who comes in with gastritis. Now, I'm not an expert, and this is definitely my opinion, but I disagree with this. I live by the adage that you should always know what to do with a positive result. If a patient is not complaining of melanin or bright red blood per rectum, a fecal occult blood test is, I think, of little utility. Though this test is highly sensitive for blood in stool, it's not really specific at all for an upper GI bleed or an upper GI source of your bleeding. So what do you end up doing with that patient with a positive fecal occult blood test who doesn't have any complaints of rectal bleeding. Do you admit them? Do you get them urgent endoscopy? Or is this the equivalent of finding an incidentaloma on an unwarranted CT scan? Are you now putting the patient at risk of further unnecessary testing, including the risks of EGD, just because you found blood from a possibly undiagnosed internal hemorrhoid? Again, this is my opinion, and it is not the standard of care. There's no specific statements from the American College of Gastroenterology advocating for or against the general use of the fecal occult blood test in patients with dyspepsia or gastritis-like symptoms. This is just food for thought. If you disagree, let me know. Moving on. Whenever you have a benign diagnosis like gastritis, the biggest thing to do before you discharge these patients home is to remember to keep a wide differential. If you think the patient might have pancreatitis, send a lipase. If the patient had acute onset, severe epigastric pain, and lipase is normal, think about imaging. Is this a gastric ulcer perforation? Is this cholecystitis? Is this cholangitis? 
Or is it the real boogeyman, an acute MI? Missed MI is the biggest source of payouts and litigation against emergency physicians. And guess what the majority of these missed MIs are diagnosed with at their first ED visit? You guessed it, gastritis. Does this mean every single patient who comes in with dyspepsia or gastritis-like symptoms needs a cardiac cath? Definitely not, but make sure your history covers cardiac risk factors. Ask the patient if they have any associated shortness of breath. Is the pain worse with exertion? Is the pain better with rest? So on and so forth. In patients over 40 or younger patients with risk factors, I generally get an EKG. Elderly patients or patients with a concerning history or considerable risk factors, I might get a troponin as well. I typically enroll these patients into the heart pathway and will discharge home to their PCP after a thorough discussion with the patient regarding return precautions. Am I advocating a cardiac workup on all gastritis patients? Definitely not. Don't get paralyzed into thinking every belly pain is having an MI. Just have it on your radar. Having a discussion with the patient and documenting why you do not think this patient's belly pain is an MI will help keep you out of hot water if things go bad further down the line. Dispo for gastritis is simple. Discontinue NSAIDs if appropriate, counsel patients on alcohol cessation, and start a PPI or Pepsid with Melox or a buffer otherwise for symptomatic management. I'll let the internists argue about PPIs versus Pepsid. For now, I typically go with Pantoprazole with the notable exception of patients on Plavix as PPIs have been shown to decrease Plavix's antiplatelet activity. In these patients, I go with Pepsid. If the patient already has failed a four to eight week trial of PPI or Pepsid, consider checking for H. pylori or setting up the patient for EGD for gastric brushings. At County, we use the stool antigen test, which is great if your patient has to drop a deuce in the ER, but not really practical if your patient doesn't need to poop. I'm not waiting around loading my patients with prune juice and coffee. I just get them EGD follow-up and PCP follow-up. What if your patient has a massive upper GI bleed secondary to gastric ulcer? As always, follow the ABCs. Get a couple of peripheral IV lines and treat supportively. Start some IV fluids and consider blood products and get that patient on a PPI. Typically, we start pantoprazole 80 milligram bolus and then start a drip at 8 milligrams per hour. A recent meta-analysis compared this bolus drip approach to simple BID dosing of IV pantoprazole and found no difference. But I'm not quite sure we can apply this data to an ED population as this meta-analysis only included patients after they had EGD and any possible EGD therapies. Therefore, until we have data showing BID dosing is effective and safe in ED patients, I'm going to continue just using the bolus drip approach. Patients who have active bleeding will need urgent endoscopy and likely MICU admission. All right, so there's your brief review on gastritis, dyspepsia, and PUD. Thanks so much for listening. All right, moving right along. Our next talk is coming from our first intern presenter of the year. Mercedes Shinecki is going to be covering biliary disease and pancreatitis. one of the PGY1s at Cook County, and I'm going to talk about pancreatitis and cholecystitis, two of the most common and bread and butter GI cases we see in the emergency department. Let's get started with pancreatitis. Straight out of Tintin Alley's, pancreatitis is defined as an inflammatory process of the pancreas that may be limited to the pancreas or may affect the surrounding tissues and even cause remote organ system dysfunction. Most cases involve just mild inflammation of the pancreas, with a mortality rate of less than 1%, and resolve completely with supportive care. But it's a small proportion that end up with pancreatic necrosis and surrounding inflammation and have a mortality rate up to 30%. Some interesting facts about pancreatitis. Developed countries have a higher incidence of pancreatitis than developing, and men and women get the disease with equal frequency. Although alcohol is usually a culprit in men and gallstone-induced pancreatitis is more common in women. Blacks have two to three times higher incidence than whites 
and incidence of pancreatitis has a peak around middle age. Most causes relate to either gallstones or alcohol. But as we all know, hypertriglyceremia, sepsis, trauma, certain medications and undergoing an ERCP can all be rare causes as well. We don't really have a clear understanding of the pathophys of pancreatitis, but it is thought that unlike normal circumstances, where trypsinogen is produced in the pancreas and secreted into duodenum where it is converted to the active trypsin, in pancreatitis, trypsin is activated within the pancreatic cells, and this activated trypsin in turn activates other digestive enzymes that leads to the pancreatic autodigestion and injury that we see in pancreatitis. Fortunately, most cases never progress beyond local inflammation, but if a systemic inflammatory response is mounted, it can lead to multi-organ failure. So what to look for on history and physical exam? Usually typical presentation is a middle-aged patient with a history of gallstones or heavy alcohol use who presents with acute and severe epigastric pain associated with nausea, vomiting, some anorexia, and loss of appetite. Pain may radiate to the back or chest and worsen with oral intake. Other symptoms include abdominal swelling, diaphoresis, and hematemesis. Pain described as lower abdominal pain or dull or colicky pain is highly unlikely to be pancreatitis, but don't write off pancreatitis if pain is located in either of the upper quadrants. As always, you have to pay attention to the vitals. Patients can present with severe pancreatitis with tachycardia, tachypnea, fever, or hypotension. It's important to recognize systemic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as SIRS, as it's a strong predictor of severity. Now, tenderness is usually confined to the epigastric area or upper abdomen, and it's often with guarding and decreased bowel sounds. Rare physical exam findings associated with late and severe pancreatitis include the Collins sign and the Gray-Turner sign, which you may remember from medical school. Collins sign is the bluish discoloration around the umbilicus signifying hemoperitoneum, and Gray-Turner is a reddish-brown discoloration along the flanks that signifies more retroperitoneal bleeding. Now, the formal diagnosis of pancreatitis is based on having at least two of three criteria. The first is what we just discussed, the clinical presentation consistent with acute pancreatitis. The second is serum, lipase, or amylase levels that are elevated above the upper limit of normal. Lipase is more specific to pancreatic injury and remains elevated for longer after onset of symptoms than amylase. The third is imaging findings characteristic of acute pancreatitis. As far as imaging, when is it necessary? So in patients who meet the clinical presentation and laboratory criteria, routine early CT with or without contrast is not recommended. There is no evidence that early CT with or without contrast improves clinical outcomes. However, if the diagnosis is not clear and imaging is obtained, the following are typical findings consistent with the diagnosis. 1. Pancreatic parenchymal inflammation with or without peripancreatic fat inflammation, 2. Pancreatic necrosis or peripancreatic necrosis, 3. Peripancreatic fluid collections, or 4. Pancreatic pseudocysts. For patients with acute pancreatitis where gallstones have not been excluded, always get a transabdominal ultrasound in the ED to detect gallstone pancreatitis. Also important to know that alanine aminotransferase levels above 150 within the first 48 hours of symptoms predicts gallstone pancreatitis with greater than 85% positive predictive value. In addition to serum lipase and amylase, always obtain blood studies to evaluate for renal and liver dysfunction, electrolyte status, glucose level, white count, and hemoglobin. These labs will help predict disease severity and outcome and identify complications. So what's the treatment? The treatment is usually supportive and symptomatic therapy. Early aggressive hydration decreases morbidity and mortality. Fluid losses in pancreatitis occur from the vomiting, third spacing, and the insensible losses, and also decrease oral intake. Patients generally need 2.5 to 4 liters of fluids, with at least one-third given within the first 12 to 24 hours. And crystalloids are usually the resuscitative fluid of choice. Also remember to control pain. Pain control is best achieved with IV opioid analgesics. Initially, place patients on MPO and administer antiemetics. Acute pancreatitis by itself is not a source of infection, and prophylactic use of antibiotics and antifungals is not recommended. It's important to consider the severity of the disease for disposition of the patient. 
A number of different scoring systems exist, like the Ransom criteria, which I'm sure you've all heard of. But these scoring systems are not very useful in DD, since a lot of them require data points at 48 hours after presentation. Interestingly, though, as I mentioned, SIRS at admission and persistent at 48 hours predicts severe acute pancreatitis more simply and accurately than many of these scoring systems. Besides SIRS, a number of other clinical findings at initial assessment are associated with severe disease. Some of these include patient characteristics like advanced age, more than 55 years, obesity, altered mental status, and some are laboratory findings like BUN above 20 or hematocrit above 44% or rising or an increased creatinine. Consider admission for first bouts of acute pancreatitis, for any cases of biliary pancreatitis, and for patients needing frequent IV medications, not tolerating oral medications, or with persistent abnormal vitals, or any signs of organ insufficiency. Admit to the ICU for patients with severe pancreatitis or anyone who meets the local criteria for admission to an ICU unit. Biliary pancreatitis requires either admission by surgery or early surgical consult for consideration of early cholecystectomy. All right, now let's review pancreatitis. Pancreatitis is generally a pretty easy diagnosis. A patient has epigastric pain, nausea, and vomiting, and an elevated lipase on your LFTs. When pancreatitis is straightforward, give fluids, antiemetics, and control for pain. Most of these patients will require admission for supportive care. Any first-time pancreatitis should get an ultrasound to rule out gallstone pancreatitis. You can do this bedside, but often the floor will want an official ultrasound done by radiology for documentation's sake. Also, consider sending triglycerides in any first-time pancreatitis, as this accounts for around 20% of first-time pancreatitis cases. In these patients with hypertriglyceridemia pancreatitis, treat supportively, but also you might need to start them on an insulin drip with concurrent dextrose infusion. This has been shown to rapidly help correct the hypertriglyceridemia. Also, it is important to note that to officially diagnose pancreatitis, you need two of the following three diagnostic criteria. The diagnostic criteria are, one, typical pancreatitis-like pain, two, an elevated lipase greater than three times the upper limit of normal, and three, imaging showing pancreatic inflammation. So think strongly about checking a CT in a patient with pancreatitis-like symptoms and a normal lipase. Often these patients are chronic pancreatitis and have a burned out pancreas. That means the pancreas is inflamed but does not result in a significantly elevated lipase level secondary to poor enzymatic production. If the patient has known chronic pancreatitis in a recent scan, typically, and this is my practice, I don't repeat imaging. However, if the patient has no recent scans and a normal lipase, I will generally get a CT while considering alternative diagnoses like dissection or MI. In considerably sick patients, I try not to outthink myself. I get a CT to help rule out necrotizing pancreatitis in these sick patients. Evidence does not currently support routine antibiotics in pancreatitis, with the exception of those with necrotizing pancreatitis. Now let's switch gears and talk about cholecystitis. Cholecystitis is inflammation of the gallbladder that's usually caused by an obstructing gallstone. In the United States, the prevalence of gallstones is 8% amongst men and 17% amongst women. With increasing age and BMI, there is also increasing chance of developing cholecystitis. Remember the four Fs of gallstone disease, female, fat, 40, fertile. The vast majority of gallstones are asymptomatic. However, the risk of developing symptoms or complication is 1 to 4% per year. Now let's quickly review the pathophysiology. As you all know, bile is stored and concentrated in the gallbladder. When we eat, the gallbladder contracts and causes bile to be released into the cystic duct and then into the common bile duct. Due to a multifactorial process that involves the supersaturation of the bile and also sometimes gallbladder dysmotility, gallstones form. And as these gallstones migrate through the biliary tree, they can obstruct the gallbladder neck, the cystic duct, or the common bile duct. 
This obstruction causes distension and increased pressure and leads to the symptoms of pain, nausea, and vomiting. Now, if the stone returns to a non-obstructing position, symptoms are relieved. But if it doesn't pass through the biliary tree and into the duodenum, an inflammatory response mounts that eventually leads to acute cholecystitis. Interestingly, bile cultures are positive in about half the patients with acute cholecystitis. Infections are typically polymicrobial, with gram-negative organisms being predominant, such as E. coli and Klebsiella. But there are also gram-positive, such as Streptococcus and anaerobes, such as Clostridia. Now, what to look for on the history and physical exam? Biliary colic presents with pain in the epigastric region, or right upper quadrant of the abdomen, and occasionally radiates the back. The pain is associated with nausea and vomiting, and typically lasts no longer than a few hours. Interestingly, the association with fatty food is not always well supported, but it has been shown that colic follows a circadian rhythm, with a peak in symptoms occurring usually around midnight. The classic presentation of acute cholecystitis is a patient that presents with biliary colic that's not resolved after a few hours, along with nausea, vomiting, and fever. On exam, patients typically have severe tenderness, but may also have rigidity or rebound tenderness. It's important to keep in mind that Murphy's sign is only 65% sensitive and 87% specific for acute cholecystitis, and fever is only present in about a third of the cases. Labs are typically normal in biliary colic, but an elevated white count and inflammatory markers like CRP should clue you towards cholecystitis. Keep in mind, though, that a white count above 10 is only 63% sensitive, and a normal white count can't be used to rule out the disease. The differential diagnosis of acute cholecystitis includes other diseases of the biliary tract, such as biliary colic, cholecolithiasis, and cholangitis and other con conditions of the GI tract, such as pancreatitis, hepatitis, peptic ulcer disease, and gastritis. If there's jaundice on exam or LFT derangements on the lab work, we have to start thinking about alternative diagnoses, like cholecolithiasis and cholangitis. Now, as far as imaging is concerned, abdominal ultrasound is by far the imaging modality of choice for acute cholecystitis. It's 81% sensitive and 83% specific. The most sensitive ultrasound finding in acute cholecystitis is the presence of gallstones in combination with a sonographic Murphy sign. Both gallbladder wall thickening greater than 3 mm and pericholecystic fluid are secondary findings. Acute cholecystitis can also be shown on an abdominal CT with contrast, although the sensitivity and specificity for that are ill-defined. CT scans are usually limited due to the insensitivity for gallstones and also the inability to detect the Murphy's sign. The advantage of IV contrast CT, however, is the ability to reveal complications of cholecystitis, such as gangrenous cholecystitis, emphysematous cholecystitis, and ultimately gallbladder perforation that are not as reliably found on ultrasound. So CT scans are worth pursuing for a really sick patient. HIDA scans and MRIs including MRCP, may also be used to evaluate for cholecystitis with sensitivities and specificities similar to ultrasound and can be used for cases where the ultrasound is not diagnostic. The limitation of the HIDA scan lies in its inability to evaluate for complications of cholecystitis or evaluate for alternative diagnoses which may be found on ultrasound. Now let's move on to treatment. Asymptomatic gallstones generally don't require treatment. Elective cholecystectomy is occasionally recommended for those at high risk of gallstone complications. The ED management of biliary colic includes symptom control and referral to a surgeon for outpatient lab coli. Symptoms management in the ED includes antiemetics and pain control. NSAIDs are typically the first line, but opioids may be used for short-term pain control. Acute cholecystitis and its complications are managed in the hospital with surgical consults. Early lab coli is often the treatment of choice. Gallbladder ischemia and transmural necrosis usually occur if obstruction persists for long enough and lead to the dangerous complications of cholecystitis, such as gangrenous cholecystitis, emphysematous cholecystitis, and gallbladder perforation. And that's why an early laparoscopic coli is indicated. ED treatment of acute coli includes pain control, administration of antiemetics, keeping patients MPO, IV hydration, electrolyte repletion, and also the administration of antibiotics. 
Appropriate antibiotic regimens include second and third generation cephalosporins, carbapenems, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations, or the combination of metronidazole and afluoroquinolone. Once symptoms are adequately controlled, patients with biliary colic can typically be discharged from the ED with follow-up with a general surgeon. They should be instructed, however, to return to the ED if they have symptoms of gallstone complications, like prolonged pain, fever, or jaundice. Patients who present to the ED with acute coli or cholangitis require hospital admission. For suspected cholangitis, emergency consults or transfer to an institution with treatment capabilities for ERCP is absolutely necessary. Patients with severe disease, including many with cholangitis, should be admitted to a critical care unit. Great stuff. Let's do a quick review on biliary disease. Generally, biliary disease is diagnosed with your history and physical, an ultrasound, plus or minus LFTs. Generally, in anyone who has a gallbladder and right upper quadrant abdominal pain, I do a bedside ultrasound and get LFTs. These scans are generally pretty easy to do and I'd recommend honing in your skills. Sometimes I have difficulty seeing the CBD or the common bile duct, but that's generally okay because cholelithiasis almost invariably results in an increased bile and a cholestatic picture on your LFTs. If you really don't feel comfortable doing a bedside ultrasound, get the formal. Also, if the patient has cholecystitis, you'll likely need a formal ultrasound to convince surgery to take the patient. In these patients with cholecystitis, you'll typically start them on antibiotics, typically ceftriaxone and flagell accounting. These patients will also need supportive care like IV fluids and pain control. For cholelithiasis, these patients just need outpatient surgery follow-up for elective cholecystectomy. If the patient has common bile duct disease like cholelithiasis or cholangitis, remember that these patients generally do not need surgery. Rather, they need GI and an ERCP. Uncomplicated cholelithiasis does not require any prophylactic antibiotics. Differentiating cholelithiasis and cholangitis is pretty easy. Cholangitis patients are very sick. Ultimately, these patients will also need an ERCP, but you should cover them with broad-spectrum antibiotics like Vank and Zosin, and you should strongly consider MEQ admission. All right, we are in the home stretch. Let's move right along to Dr. Patrick Hoffman, who will be covering hepatitis and complications of liver cirrhosis. Hey, Sue! Coffin here from Cook County Hospital Emergency Medicine, PGY3. It's time for another podcast helping out Dr. John Hardwick covering the liver. That's right, everyone's favorite organ because we all understand it so freaking well, right? Well, maybe not. But you need to know the liver because it helps you to be able to live. And why do I keep saying it in that stupid Batman voice? Well, Hardwick told me to, and anything in this podcast that's funny was my original idea, but anything that sounds lame was definitely Hardwick's idea. All right, so here we go. Uh, we're going to cover the chapter 10 nowadays that deals with hepatic disorders and failure. So I'm talking about hepatitis, acute and chronic, cirrhosis, a wee bit of toxicology, and uh, of course, the end-all be-all of all hepatic disease, fulminant liver failure. And then we're going to talk about what your workup and your management is. So acute and chronic hepatitis is caused by typically two common things. One, viral infection. Yeah, we all know about the different types of hepatitis, and I'll review that. Two, alcohol. Yes, yes, your favorite thing to do on a Friday, Saturday night. But in overdose or in chronic heavy consumption, of course, it can cause major liver problems. Liver failure can be from either of these causes, and um, as well as some toxins, namely acetaminophen and certain mushrooms. All right, so let's talk viral infection. There's three main types, hepatitis A, B, and C. There's, of course, hepatitis D, but that really just piggybacks on B, so I'm not really going to deal with it right now. So A, B, and C, 
these are more common than you think. Definitely common worldwide, okay? Hep A is spread by the fecal-oral route, usually self-limited with no chronic infections. So if you're going to catch one, I'd go for type A. 33% or a third of the U.S. can get this at some point in their life. Hep B is spread by blood and other body fluids, of course. It's the most common to get in, um, by this mechanism if you're swapping fluids with somebody or by a needle stick or if you're an IV drug user, something like that. Uh, the most common bloodborne pathogen in a needle stick, so be careful if you have one in the ED or at work. Of course, transmission has a lot to do with your own personal immunity status, so be up to date on your titers. Um, Hep B can become chronic, so it's acute, and then can become chronic. 4.95% of the U.S. population can get this. 2,000 to 4,000 annual deaths according to Tintinales. Now, of course, that statistic is from like eight or nine years ago from this textbook. And now hepatitis C. What do you need to know about C? Well, C is for chronic. It's most likely to become a chronic infection. It will affect only 1.6% of the U.S. population, but has 8,000 to 10,000 annual deaths, four times that of just hepatitis B. All right, so after our viral causes, we have alcoholic hepatitis and cirrhosis. This affects about 20% of all alcoholics. And then lastly, there's toxicology stuff. All right, so of course we think about Tylenol. And a lot of different drugs can uh, contain Tylenol, not just straight up APAP or acetaminophen. 42% of annual acute liver failure is caused by Tylenol. 42%, that's pretty hefty. So all these entities, viruses, alcohol, Tylenol, all of these guys, and some other tox um, can all end up in fulminant liver failure. All right, so let's move on to the pathophys. I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly because uh, we're just talking about how things work, and I'll try to get ahead to the workup and the treatment the dispo. Okay, so basically, acute hepatitis is caused by an infection, a toxin, or a metabolic injury. The hepatocytes are damaged, and there's potential scarring of the liver. With chronic disease, the liver parenchyma is replaced by scar tissue, which can lead to loss of hepatocyte function at the cellular level, progressive portal hypertension, and portal systemic shunting. Woo, a lot of big words there. Okay, so what is exactly damaged here? What does the liver do for you? Well, it kind of does everything in some ways, especially as far as metabolism goes. So when that goes out the window, you're going to get sick. So the vast majority of anything that goes into your body is metabolized by the liver. All the blood from the gut is drained via the portal system through the liver. Liver filters out natural toxins in your blood too and helps metabolize ammonia via the nitrogen cycle. It also, of course, has glycogen stores and helps with gluconeogenesis. Liver also has many synthetic functions, particularly vitamin K-dependent clotting factors, factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, protein CNS, as well as other elements of the clotting and thermolytic process. Of course, it helps make albumin via protein synthesis, provides a lot of the colloid pressure in blood, and helps form platelets as well. So what are the big complications of poor hepatic function? Well, how about everyone's favorite cause of a distended abdomen? Ascites. Okay, so all these complications. Here's the pathophys. First, I'm talking about ascites, everyone's favorite cause of a big old belly. Losing colloid pressure of the blood from decreased albumin, as well as portal hypertension, poor renal management of sodium. All of this culminates in a belly full of big old fluid. You're going to have a big old giant fluid wave. That's right. Third spacing fluid into the peritoneum. This has all kinds of complications, okay? So they got ascites one complication. What's the biggest, scariest complication of ascites? That's right, SBP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. This is a big deal. Now, how does it happen? Well, you have bowel wall edema. It can lead to bowel flora translocation. So the bugs in the gut translocate onto the peritoneum, okay? The peritoneal cavity, you can get bacteremia and infection. And this is a bad infection. It's a crucial diagnosis to get. Survival of patients with first-time SPP is 68% at one month and only 30% at six months. So that's a whopping 70% mortality at six months. Damn, that's a pretty scary prognosis. So roughly 30% of acidic patients will develop SPP in a given year. The scary thing is we often think of abdominal tenderness, fever, leukocytosis as all main signs, but these are not always present. And it can be present in the setting of just any new ascites. So they, they may not have anything but just new ascites. What other things can happen with the situs? Well, it can get so big, it increases your work of breathing. It elevates the diaphragm. Um, you have decreased lung reserve. Of course, you can also get some uh, small pleural effusions as well from fluid transportation across the diaphragm. All right, so the situs is a big complication with liver failure. What next? Well, how about varices? So portal hypertension. So the portal venous system, draining blood to the liver. The liver can't process all that, so it's scarred. There's decreased blood flow through the damaged liver. You're going to get portal hypertension. This is going to cause esophageal and gastric varices. It can lead to portal systemic shunting. So instead of the portal venous system going through the liver and getting filtered, it's just going to straight to the systemic system. 
all right? Varices can obviously, it's a massive GI bleed. You can get anemia, shock, you can vomit, get an aspirate, and you can die. Um, and remember, poor liver function alters your clotting factors, will increase clotting times. Liver plays a role in platelet synthesis, so platelets are chronically low. This increases the risk for bleeding as well. And, of course, easy bruising. All right, so we've covered ascites and now varices. What next? Well, how's the brain affected in this situation? All right, so you got shunting, which bypasses the liver. Blood doesn't go through the liver. Toxins aren't removed. Shunting also deprives the liver of substrate needed for ammonia metabolism. It needs that substrate to go to the liver via the portal drainage system from the gut. Um, doesn't have that, so it can't deal with the ammonia. Ammonia builds up in the body. It can't adequately finish the nitrogen cycle. And encephalopathy can ensue. Encephalopathy is the big next step here. So encephalopathy is poorly understood, but it's an important element of chronic liver disease. Ammonia is often presumed to be the cause, but the cause is actually not well understood. Ammonia is formed via protein metabolism by colonic bacteria, and ammonia enters the circulation. Okay? So you got the colon bacteria, all right? Protein is metabolized. Ammonia is then entering the uh, circulation via this. Now, if you have a large GI protein load, now that could be from a large protein meal or one of Gucci's 17 meals of the day, or from GI bleeding, a lot of uh, protein burden in the GI um, bleeding when the blood is in the circulation getting digested, that can fuel this process. So excess protein, uh, the colon will try to metabolize it, get a lot of protein, a lot of ammonia. That ammonia can then accumulate when it's shunted past the liver, and the liver can't get rid of it via the nitrogen cycle. Okay. So ammonia levels don't reliably correlate with mental status, but you can think of ammonia as a contributing factor to altered mental status. In addition, substances metabolized by the liver that build up in liver disease because the liver isn't working combine GABA and benzoyl receptors in the brain and result in neuroinhibition. So lastly, in fulminant liver failure, you can get cerebral edema, increased ICP, loss of autoregulation of cerebral blood flow, and finally a surge-like relaxation all contribute to deadly encephalopathy. All right, so ascites, varices, encephalopathy, what next? Well, what about what these people look like? And what do you think? I mean, are they pale? Are they pallor? Sometimes it could be anemic. What's the big color you think of? They are phosphorescent yellow. Their bilirubin has built up. That's right. Basically, they are a phosphorescent lightning bulb. They're more yellow than a beautiful evening summer sun in the Arkansas River. Yeah, I had to throw that in there. All right, this, of course, is from the bilirubin in excess. Why does the bilirubin build up? Well, there's three main causes. There's prehepatic, hepatic, and posthepatic. For prehepatic causes, think hemolysis. This can be from inborn errors, metabolism, or from certain diseases like sickle cell, something like that, or other causes of bilirubin. But think prehepatic, think hemolysis. All right. Leads to increased indirect bile. This overwhelms the liver's ability to conjugate the bilirubin. Next, hepatic causes, like acute hepatitis. The liver's just not functioning as well. You can have poor conjugation, increased indirect bile, like viral infection, alcohol, or Tylenol as a toxin. Lastly, post-hepatic causes of high bilirubin. This is from obstruction to bilirubin excretion, such as gallstones, pancreatic tumors, biliary atresia, stuff like that. All right, one more thing. How are the other organ systems in the body affected? Well, we mentioned encephalopathy for the brain, okay? What about the kidneys? You remember this term you've heard of, hepatorenal syndrome, basically liver kidney syndrome? This is development of acute renal failure in a patient with liver failure but normal kidneys. So there's two types here. Type 1. It's more common. It's with decreased urination, oliguria, doubling of creatinine within two weeks, okay? So acute renal failure. Type 2 is a gradual impairment that isn't as severe. So mainly what we're going to think about in the ER is going to be type 1. This is scary stuff. The median survival for type 1 hepatorenal syndrome is less than a month without medical treatment. People will die within one month if they don't get good medical treatment. And this can be heralded by SPP. So people get SPP and then renal failure too. And both of those are critical. This is serious stuff. All right, so that's a lot of info. We've talked about the pathophys here. The main causes of liver failure and problems are viral infection, alcohol, toxins. We've covered the complications, ascites, varices, SBP, GI bleeds, encephalopathy, toxin buildup, increased bilirubin, all that good stuff. So a lot of complications. Now for the fun stuff. Let's talk about what are you going to do. So a patient comes in with evidence of liver injury, liver failure. What's your workup, your treatment, your disposition? Well, chief complaints often involve jaundice, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, right upper quadrant pain, a GI bleed, easy bruising, ascites, edema, or altered mental status. Now, remember, always check vitals for these guys. Vitals are vital. Chronic liver disease patients often third space a lot of fluids. So their blood pressure is chronically low. 
and check for abnormalities in their vital signs, fever, conclusion, SPP, et cetera. So what questions do you ask? Of course, discuss past medical history, chronicity, acuity, what risk factors do they have for liver problems? Are they an alcoholic? Do they have a viral infection? Do they have HIV? Concomitant HIV and hepatitis can be from IV drug use or other risky um, social activity, and HIV on top of hepatitis can accelerate hepatitis. Have they recently got blood transfusions? Are they an injection drug user? Large Tylenol use? Meds containing Tylenol? As a patient urinating well? Think about hepatorenal stuff. Other questions to ask when you've gone and seen, seen this patient in your, in your history. Is this a tox thing possibly causing acute hepatitis? Is it a tox thing? Think Tylenol, Tylenol, Tylenol. Good old acetaminophen causes 42% of liver failure in the U.S. every year, like I said. Is this acute or chronic overdose? So if that's the case, go down your tox, work up, check levels, NAC, et cetera. Also remember other pain meds that contain Tylenol. Other questions to ask. Uh, other meds can cause liver damage like valproic acid, phenytoin, statins, et cetera. There's a long list in the book, table 83.3, if you want to consult it um, to look at it. Other things that can cause toxic liver injury, mushroom poisoning. So if you're like the scrupulous Lonnie Tan out in a wilderness medicine fellowship, hanging out with a hiker who ate a bad mushroom, you could probably think of that. It's the Manita phalloides mushroom. All right, moving on. So what's your physical exam? That's your history taking. What about your physical exam? All right, what do they look like? Are they in distress? Okay. Are they yellow? high bilirubin. They have hepatomegaly. Those are big ascites. You see signs like caput medusa, um, easy bruising. Check for asterisks. That, of course, is the classic hand flapping. Hold both hands out at arm's length, slightly elevated, see if they flap back and forth. Are they altered? Is there peripheral neuropathy? Do they like, have other evidence of alcoholism, like poor gait, evidence of Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome? You know the drill here for getting your history. All right. So from your H&P, try to attain whether this is acute, chronic, or fulminant failure. If acute, what's your cause? Is it viral? Okay. Is it alcoholic? Patient will likely need admission for further workup and supportive care. All right. Now, if it's chronic, of course, again, viral or alcoholic. Is patient at their baseline if this is a chronic issue? Is this an acute exacerbation? Are they altered? Is there difficulty breathing? Is there an infection, a GI bleed, et cetera? Do they need a paracentesis? Okay. So that was the H&P, and now you're thinking of your plan. You're walking back from the patient's room over to your computer, going to put in some orders. Think about what you want to do. So first of all, good old ABCs. We're ER docs, of course, start with just the ABCs. Is there airway compromise? All right. Is there a massive GI bleed? They're vomiting blood. They're going to aspirate. Take that airway. If they're altered encephalopathic and they can't protect their airway, take that airway. I'm talking about intubation here. BiPAP is often not an option as patients are too somnolent and have a risk for aspiration. Can the patient breathe? Is there so much fluid overload? Is there too much ascites? He may need some diuresis too. All right, so that's airway and breathing. So C, blood pressure. Is he bottomed out? Try to take a look at the heart and the IVC. Is the patient third spacing? Is there sepsis? Is there another type of shock? Why is their blood pressure low? If the heart can handle it and lungs are clear, try some fluids. The patient may need, of course, pressure support as well. Remember, these guys with chronic disease often live with systolic low, like hundreds and 90s. So you may never achieve a classic 120 over 80. And they tachycardic. Is it from fluid loss, fluid shift? Is there another reason? They may need an EKG or chest x-ray. Eval other systems besides just the liver, of course. Is the GIB causing anemia? Could that be causing tachycardia? Ask your questions for this and consider a guaiac test, checking for a GI bleed. All right, so after your ABCs, now we got some lab tests. So what are our main categories of liver tests here? Well... Check your CBC and BMP. You're checking for anemia, a white count. Checking for your amount of platelets. Watch for hyponatremia. Alcoholic cirrhotics often have chronically low sodium, so check old values if possible to compare where their sodium is at. Potomania results from low PO food intake and can have chronically low sodium. All right? Consider a trope for chest pain. Urine if worried about hepatorenal syndrome. So what tests exactly for the liver? So there's four main categories here of um, tests to do just for the liver. There's one. Markers of acute hepatocyte injury and death. I'm talking like your AST, ALT, and ALKFOS. Two, markers of synthetic function in the liver, like your coags, albumin. Three, indicators of hepatic catabolic activity, like your ammonia. And four, this uh, category tests the diagnosis of specific disease entities. Likely not doing that in the emergency room, but could be done by request of a specialist. Maybe you check in for hepatocellular carcinoma, work up for that, alpha protein, something like that. Okay. All right, so we've done our lab workup. Any cultures for infection? Yeah, check blood cultures. All right, so what about SBP? Back to that. So this is something you don't want to miss in your workup. So if they have abdominal pain, 
and they have ascites. Is the pain the same they've always had? Like it's just from fluid burden or is it different? Are they tender? Is this a first time ascites? The first time they've had it, they're not feeling well. If you're concerned at all, I'd err on the side of a simple 10 to 20 cc diagnostic tap. If there's a lot of fluid, it's a simple procedure. Just use an ultrasound, find a good fluid pocket and send fluid to the lab. And you can also obtain blood and ascites cultures. If a tap is done, additional studies on the fluid should be cytology, acidic fluid, albumin, LDH, and tumor markers. All right, it's quick, quicker than an LP, and you just can send the fluid down in the lab and really help work up. Okay, so that's our liver labs to send. So how do we interpret these? All right, are your ALT and your AST elevated? All right, people often say the word transaminitis. That doesn't, of course, mean inflammation of it, but is there elevation of the ALT and AST? ALT is more specific for the liver. AST can come from other parts of the body. And then, of course, you can look at, is there an AST to ALT ratio of 2 to 1? AST is increased more in alcoholic cirrhosis because alcohol stimulates production of AST. If it is acute, expect higher levels than chronic. Acute hepatitis is likely to need admission. So if you see the crazy high levels, you're likely to need admission. Are they coagulopathic on checking your coags? Do they need replacement here? If they have a bleed, do they need platelets, FFP, vitamin K? Is the ammonia crazy high? Do we treat that with lactulose? Are they infected for ascites fluid, the fluid that you sent down to check for SPP? A total white blood cell count greater than 1,000 or a neutrophil count greater than 250 is diagnostic of SPP. Low glucose and high protein also suggest bacterial infection. All right, so we've done our labs. Is there any imaging to do? So ultrasound is, of course, great for biliary issues, like, you know, checking your gallbladder, your CBD, and stuff like that for obstruction. You can get a good window of the, of the liver here and just see, is it, uh, are there any abscesses? Sometimes you can see there, of course, is there just normal parenchyma or is it different? And then CT can show cancer, abscess, um, vascular malformations, and other in infectious lesions of the liver. Um, and lastly, if you're checking for a thrombosis, like a hepatic vein or portal vein thrombosis, um, CT contrast or ultrasound can be used. Doppler ultrasound is typically the chest of choice here. Now, is there any other imaging to do besides the abdomen? All right, well, what have the patients altered? Okay, they have altered mental status. Always a good idea to get a quick head CT, even if you're sure it's hepatic related. Yeah, they could have increased ammonia or other toxins for the hepatic failure, but the patient's coagulopathic often with liver failure. They may have a brain hemorrhage, a hematoma, may have bumped their head, they didn't realize it. Uh, and you may catch an unexpected cause of the AMS too. So complete that workup. All right, we're moving on. We're out in third base. We're heading home. So what is your treatment here? Well, we discussed the acute treatment with the ABCs. I talked about your labs. Okay. So except for Tylenol poisoning, treatment for acute hepatitis is supportive. For Tylenol, check your post-four-hour ingestion, uh, your sediment level with a nomogram. Give NAC or charcoal vindicated. Consult tox. May ultimately need a transplant, et cetera. Okay. Um, so supportive care there. For the chronically ill liver patient, discuss their chronic meds. Patient may need to go back on them if they aren't compliant. For edema and ascites, they sh you should have a salt-restricted diet. Lasix can be helpful with diuresis, but it can also be problematic. It can lead to overdiuresis. Be especially careful in the hyponatremic patient here. Therapeutic taps can be done in the ER for paracentesis, but be careful. Don't remove too much fluid. This can lead to large fluid shifts as well, and you need to observe them for a while. In RID, we usually don't do therapeutic taps without admission, so just be mindful. All right, if suspicious for SBP, cover with antibiotics. You do treat this infection, of course. Examples are ceftriaxone. Now, it's a two-gram dose, like with meningitis, not the one gram for pneumonia. So you have two grams of ceftriaxone if you think SBP. Other options are zosin, unison, cefotaxime. And of course, remember to send your cultures. If you're concerned for encephalopathy, high ammonia, treat with lactulose. Now, don't wait for the ammonia level. If you're concerned with encephalopathy, just treat with the lactulose. Lactulose forms lactic acid in the colon and in this acidic environment, the ammonia is trapped and excreted in the stool. And you can give lactulose via NG tube if the patient's innovated. You can also give it rectally, okay? If a GI bleed, coagulopathy should be corrected. Remember, if they have a bleed, give them what they need. If, even if platelets are at their patient's baseline, if low, give platelets. Give FFP as needed as well. Start patient on vitamin K supplementation to help with clotting factor formation too if they can. With GI bleed and cirrhotics, cover with antibiotics as a ceftriaxone as the blood-gut barrier has been compromised could lead to bacteremia. Call GI early to set up endoscopy, facilitate cessation of bleeding at the site. Okay, you can't get in there and stop the bleeding if it's a GI bleed, but they can with endoscopy. 
Proton pump inhibitor, prantoprazole, protonics, IV should be given bolus and drip to help decrease bleeding after endoscopy. And in these patients, give octreotide. This decreases splenic circulation, decreases bleeding from varices. Common dose, 50 milligram bolus and drip. And finally, what is your disposition? All right. So the patient appears well, presenting just for a checkup or just like a therapeutic tap um, and that was done in the ER. They can likely be discharged. Discuss close follow-up and medications with the patient. Make sure they have a good supply. Patients should have a PCP, a GI doc, or a transplant specialist for them to follow up with that is monitoring them because they are chronically ill. Consider admission for high-risk patients like the elderly, those that are pregnant. And then those with bilirubin greater than 20, a PT 50% above normal, hypoglycemic, uh, low albumin, or any GI bleeding, think about admission. And like admit those with respiratory difficulty, concern for SBP, IV antibiotics, those with like fever, leukocytosis, and acidosis. They have severe hyponatremia, hyper or hypovolemia, hepatic encephalopathy, and hepatorenal syndrome. MICU admissions are common for the chronically ill liver guys, okay? Especially with severe GI bleeds, that severe encephalopathy, severe hyponatremia, and hepatorenal syndrome. They're sick. They should be evaluated by the unit, likely go to the unit. And always call GI quickly. Remember what I said. Call GI quickly in case of a bad bleed so they can arrange endoscopy and stop that bleeding proximally at the source. All right, so disposition. Likely admitted for a lot of these people, especially the high-risk patients. Make you admission for the severely sick and bad GI bleeds. Um, or very close follow-up if they're pretty healthy and they didn't meet any of these requirements. Well, that about sums it up, guys. That about sums up the liver. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Go out there and save some lives. Signing off. All right, that is a wrap. Another one bites the dust. Big thanks to Patrick and Mercedes for their excellent talks. If you want to make a podcast of your own or have any critiques, email me at hardwickjohn2013 at gmail.com. As always, this podcast does not represent the views of Stroger Hospital, Cook County Human Health Services, or the Stroger Emergency Medicine Residency. We will see you next month. Thank you so much for listening.